0: restaurant unstoppable episode 1021 with
1: chip close you're in this industry and you want nothing to do with it you hate it it's a reminder of your failure in other ways and etc or you embrace that what we do is extraordinary not everyone can do it and not everyone can do it well and so if you've got the opportunity to do it this is from my dad if you're gonna do it you might as well do it well right and I think everyone has the threshold to do it well if they want. Are you ready for it, it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatori in and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Restaurant owners
0: and operators, you can make a difference in the lives of your staff and their families by supporting CORE, which stands for Children of Restaurant Employees. CORE is a national nonprofit that provides financial grants to food and beverage service employees with children when either the employee their child or their partner faces a life altering medical crisis or natural disaster. Not only can you share core as a benefit in resource with your staff, you can also donate directly or host a fundraising promotion core critically needs your financial support to continue to provide relief to restaurant employees that qualify for a grant. When life does not go as planned support of core allows you to give back to your employees and restaurant families across the country visit core to learn more together we can make a difference in the lives of those who serve us daily restaurants unstoppable network is coming back and we are stronger than ever before so during the pandemic, I started the network as a way to evolve and adapt, and when things opened back up, I was on the road again. That is my happy place, but there is value in the network, but I knew I couldn't be on the road and do the network at the same time, so I recruited Callan Miola to be our community manager, and she is killing it. She is organizing things like I could never have done on my own, and we are getting after it. So if you want to be a part of the conversation, the podcast is the leading edge. We're out there. We're turning over rocks. We're finding leads. The network is where we pull back the layers. We dive deep. but We connect our listeners to the tools, services, and organizations that are being referred to us organically. If you want to be in the network, act now because the first 50 people to sign up will get a free t-shirt head over to restaurantstoppablecom slash whatever the episode number is find the link or the banner in the show notes and you will get a 30-day trial to get into the network get a free shirt and if you opt into the one-year plan we will throw in a hat and a mug thank you in advance this episode is brought to you by pop menu look there is a lot of elements to consider when growing your restaurant like are you connecting with your diners and with the right message and could your kitchen put out more orders than your dining room has room for? There's so much to consider and it can be overwhelming when you got into this business for the food and the people and that's why I recommend Pop Menu and that's why restaurants get Pop Menu. Frankly, Pop Menu is technology for restaurants that are ready to grow. For a limited time, get $100 off your first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro and they are launching their first time ever 60 day pilot it, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com/rsp. That's rsp for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com/rsp. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, restaurant coach and host of Restaurant Strategy Podcast, Chip. Close. Chip, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am so pumped to be sitting here. Dude, I am psyched for you. Uh, I got a copy of your book right here, The Restaurant Marketing Mindset. It releases on October 3rd. We're definitely going to be t- tapping a little bit into that. But today, I just want to kind of get to know who you are as a fellow podcaster, somebody yeah. who's helped michelin star restaurants james beard award-winning restaurants with marketing and just overall restaurant coaching uh over 20 years experience in the industry I just have a feeling like we, you, you got to have a lot of great advice.
1: And we, your, we can get into it.
0: Yeah, man. So I want to take you through a chronological journey of how you got to where you are today. Uh, I'd love to get you back on the show to go even deeper into your book. But b- before we dive into who you are and how you got to where you are today, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us?
1: This is my favorite quote of all time. Zig Ziglar, the great late He's good, Zig Ziglar. Uh, He's got this great quote uh, that he uh, wrote in his book, and he would say all the time, it goes like this. I hope it's the one I think it is. Yeah, I I think it might be. You can get anything in life you want, as long as you help enough other people get everything they want.
0: Dude, that is the quote that made me start this podcast.
1: Really? Yeah. That's amazing. So we're in the service industry, and it basically says, as long as you keep giving and giving and giving and, and, and stay focused on the other person the people in your room the people across the the table from you across the bar from you like they're going to help you get anything you want it, yeah. it's just so it's just so simple i mean there's all these like little sayings that we hear like karma and
0: just like what goes around comes around and there's so much truth to that and it was literally that quote that like made me like hey like i'm not in the position to go open a restaurant but i am in the position to start a podcast and to make enough other people who are in the position to open restaurants more successful. So I'm going to put my energy yep. into serving them. And if I can do that, then my time will come. And it's, service it, it's is working, a, man.
1: Service is a generous thing. And, and that's what we do, right? Yeah. That's what the pineapple is all about. That's, you know, we, we wear that so heavy in this industry. Yeah. So yeah.
0: Knowing what I know about pineapples, I wish mine wasn't tilted down. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you know what to say about the upside down pineapple and what it suggests, but uh, <laughs> it's leaning down, which means, Hey, I'm open-minded. Whatever you do behind closed doors is your business. And- I love it. So you're up in new England. So I remember
1: the first time I ever went to Newport and I was going through there and, and uh, Pineapples were a really big deal in Newport. And it was, uh, I mean, hundreds of years ago, right? It really, it was a true sign of- Do you know
0: the story behind that exactly? I
1: I know some of it. Tell tell me your story.
0: Well, I I, I am aware of the fact that it, is symbolic of we're open for business. We, and there's no expense that we're willing to like, you know, there's no, nothing too expensive. like expensive. Like we'll give it to you like that. It was communicating like luxury and hospitality and it was what inns would do to let people know that they're open for business. So,
1: and it went back even before that, before there were a lot of inns, for example, in Newport and throughout, uh, Newport, Rhode Island, Newport, Rhode Island and throughout, Uh, New England, and I'm guessing other parts of the world, it was places that would offer room and board, not necessarily establishments, not necessarily inns or hotels. It's an open room. just Yeah, we have an open room, and we're happy to provide uh, a night or two or a week, whatever you need, because there were always people, um, sailors and fishermen coming through there, and they didn't necessarily, uh, they had to get off the boat, and they needed somewhere to go, and it was something, it was part of then the community it was like we're open that, that now the pineapple is like the unofficial right. symbol of Newport which is but it goes all the way back and then eventually people started doing the you know the frosted glass like the Tiffany glass in the windows that sort of meant that they'd put on the light right outside there so without putting the pineapple out front yeah, because
0: pineapples are expensive
1: pineapples are expensive <laughs> they were guess what they go bad <laughs> yeah that's true uh, I that that's what I
0: wasn't sure of I knew exactly what you said like I I, I was aware it had something to do with that but what I I was always curious about: was where did it originate? Yeah, it the first
1: I, I'm sure it goes back uh, further than what I was uh, introduced to, but I just remember in Newport, which we love Newport. Um, been there a handful of times. And I just remember, I love the idea that it wasn't necessarily we're open for business, but just that we are open, that yeah. we are here to offer yeah. hospitality, yeah. that it wasn't necessarily to make a buck right? in the true spirit of, of hospitality.
0: I, for some reason thought maybe it was, it started in Charleston at one point cause I was there. I, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. One of those old port towns. Right. And, and I could just noticed it was like a part of like, you'd see it like in uh, the fences that would have like. Because they would stab the fence, right? They would put it like on the fence or they something they put like it like all that. over. Yeah, I don't know. But if anybody knows the answer to where this started, <laughs> please email me, eric at dot unstoppable.com. I'd love to know exactly the history. But um, let's dive into your story. Speaking of history, sure. man, like uh, you graduate 2000-ish. 2002, 2002. Yeah. Um Were you going to be in hospitality your no, entire life? No, absolutely not. It didn't look like it based off of your LinkedIn profile. It sure like doesn't. You had a different path. What was it, your path?
1: Then? It does not So, uh, you know, my path is really interesting, I think. And I think it aligns closely with uh, what a lot of people, what happens to a lot of people who get into our industry. So I went to theater school. I got my theater degree. I came to New York City to pursue a career in theater. And what do you do when you are an out-of-work actor? You get a job in restaurants. And restaurants were my first job, really, in New York City. And they were where I went in between gigs. And for a long time, I hated it. I hated restaurants. uh, Really because it was a reminder of uh, what I wasn't doing, right? right? Is that I was here to do something and I wasn't. And it took me a long time to get past that. And at a certain point... I did just sort of settle into it. I just sort of like let, and I just realized the opportunity that was being presented to me and all that I had access to and, you know, the best food in the world, the best wine in the world, um, education. It fed my curiosity, all of people in the world too. Let's be honest. And some of the best people. I mean, really. And when we talk about coming from a creative pursuit, when I started to realize that how creative our people were in our industry, That's when I started to embrace it. At a certain point, because I would do theater gigs, I'd come back, work in restaurants, or I'd sort of not have a theater gig, and I'd keep working in restaurants for a long time. And at a certain point, I just stopped, and I looked back, and I was like, I got a pretty good theater resume, but I got a great restaurant resume. Like, I, I had opened all these restaurants, worked for big, important people, you know, New York Times Reviews, Michelin Stars, all this, and I just thought, huh. And that sort of went side by side with the fact that I wasn't being fed creatively right. as much as I thought I would in the theater world. Meanwhile, I was opening restaurants. Like it's nothing but creative problem solving and working with really brilliant people who are trying to do something new or trying to say something that hasn't been said on the plate before. So I'm just just by being around you, I'm assuming front of house, front of
0: house, yeah. <laughs> and I can just, like you are so good at delivering like you're so good at delivering information i could see how if we're out to purchase experiences right and to be and that that's really what it's all about i would have imagined you you would have been really great at creating an amazing experience for people so w- did you know
1: yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, but that's not something that i think I excel at I think that's something that a lot of those of us who really embrace this industry are are really good at and I think if you say that and I think of the other 40 people we were sort of talking about this before we hit record before you while you were setting up like immediately if there's anything I'm good at it's only because I worked with 10 other people who were even better at it right we're we're
0: the average of those we started ourselves Uh,
1: that's uh, that's what I hope yeah
0: Uh, so at what point so you were you were working in restaurants, supporting your dream of becoming an actor. Sure, right? Was it acting or sp- yeah? So I started.
1: I started off as an actor, and then eventually, when I felt like that wasn't doing it, uh, I went and I was working as a director and a choreographer, and then eventually a writer. And for a little while, I was producing off Broadway. Um, all of that, I was trying to find the thing that would you know scratch the creativity itch because I'm a creator. I'm an entrepreneur by nature, and and that I realized over time. And that's, that's eventually what the food industry, what restaurants ended up providing me with an so opportunity to do that.
0: At what point did you shift away from your dream of theater to focus on restaurants? Yeah, it's a great
1: question. So I guess in 2004, so I came to the city in 2002, 2004, I took my first management job. That was the first real departure. Um, I, I wasn't really being fed, uh, no pun intended. I wasn't really being fed by theater. So I was like, I'm going to do this. Yeah. I'm, I'm really good at I'm really and good at it. And somebody gives me a chance. I'm going to go do it.
0: It's hard to juggle a side hustle, too, when you're working 80 hours a week. It a
1: is, <laughs> though I did. And that's right around the time. So the next year is when I stopped performing and really started producing. Producing, I could do here and there because you sort of do a project and then you do a project. and then. So I sort of kept them sidelined for a while. But meanwhile, I opened a restaurant in 04, in, 04, in 05, in 06, and 07, and 08. I mean, all the so way when up. So you say you opened restaurants. I went and worked with people who opened restaurants. I was part of the opening team. So how
0: did you get from working as a front of house server to manager to restaurant opener? What was that
1: yeah. evolution like? My first restaurant job in New York City was for a restaurant called Bluefin. It's still there. It's right in Times Square. It's at 47th and Broadway. And it was owned by a company called BR Guest Restaurants, which was owned by a guy named Steve Hansen. It's now been sold a couple of times. But uh, that was a really good place to start my true restaurant journey. I had worked in high school. I was folding pizza boxes and stuff like that. I worked all through college. I waited tables. But I didn't really know what I was doing. I came to New York, I got the job at Bluefin, right? I was a host. Couldn't afford to pay my bills as a host. So I finagled my way into a server job. And I was there, and they taught me so much. I talk a lot about that experience because he's a very difficult guy to work for. It was a very difficult company to work for. But ultimately, they taught me a ton. And I got the chance to go open Fiamma. Fiamma was uh, Chef Michael White's restaurant. Uh, Fiamma was in Soho, and he was opening an outpost in Scottsdale. There was a hotel they were opening. I got the opportunity to go out to Scottsdale for, I don't know, we were out there for seven weeks, eight weeks, something like that. And I got to go open that restaurant. So I saw it from the ground up. That's where I learned to open restaurants. So I guess that was in 2003, 2004. Okay. That was really the 20 first years time. Ago. 20 years ago. It's been a while I've been at this. That's wild, man. Yeah.
0: What was your evolution like in the early days? Like reflecting back at that time, the the blank slate you were versus the slate you are today. Like what were the biggest lessons you were learning during this time?
1: So one of the things that that company did really well is they took totally green servers who came right off the bus and actually gave them a base of knowledge that I have taken with me to every single restaurant. For example, when you got a job there, I got a job as a server at blue fin. There's a week long training, right? Which is what most restaurants do a week long training. But then there were 90 days of sort of further development. You basically took a class Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It was an hour long and it was, I'll say food, wine, and spirits. So an hour every single week. So basically took 12 food classes, 12 spirits classes, 12 wine classes over the course of your first three months there, right? And it's the last thing I wanted to do because I just wanted some free time. Right. But you had to come in even if it was your day off, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And it was almost like getting a punch ticket. Like you had a punch that you did these classes. And I hated it. And what I realized along the way is they're cooking me food. The restaurant's spending money. Right. It's digging against their cost of goods to make sure that I get to taste everything, try everything, learn something. I'd never tasted an oyster before, a raw clam. I'd never tasted caviar before. I'd never had a lot of this stuff. And that restaurant was a seafood restaurant, so there was seafood. There was raw bar. Right. There was sushi. There was caviar. I learned a ton. And then I'd go to the spirits classes. I didn't know brown spirits. I didn't know the difference between scotch and bourbon. And some of the other American whiskeys that were going on and uh, and Irish whiskey, man, I got to learn because I did a whole class about that, a whole class about tequila. I went and did wine. I learned about, oh, the different expressions of uh, the Chardonnay grape. So you see California, you see uh, Oregon, right? You see Burgundy, you see Australia, right? You learn in nine, over the course of eight weeks, right? 90 days. I learned so much. I'm sorry, 12 weeks. Over the course of 12 weeks, 90 days, I learned so much more. That was the beginning for me. By the end of that three months, I was like, oh, there's so much here to learn and so much here to experience. And therefore then, so much to introduce our guests to. So much to be a part of. Yeah,
0: it's a huge lesson too that it's not enough just to know what's on the menu. You can remember words. Yep. Like, hey, like, what do you have for Reds? Like, here's the list. I can remember that. But to be able to describe to you and understand what you like and what you know, what pairs, and like, the only way you can truly understand that is by experiencing it and then sharing your experience.
1: We are salespeople, right? When you're talking about front of house, you're talking about managers, servers, captains, bartenders. We are salespeople. Yeah. We're our only tools are our knowledge. Right. The confidence we have in that knowledge and our ability to articulate that and communicate that. We're salespeople. It's just like a car salesman. It's just like somebody selling uh software. Same thing. You can't sell software by reading off a sheet. You gotta know it. You gotta understand right. it. You gotta know why it works and why it's gonna work for them.
0: Yeah. I would just go even further and say you have to believe in
1: it. A yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred back to the Zig Ziglar thing, yep. right? How can you sell it if you don't use it? Right. Right? You gotta buy the knives if you want to go sell the knives. And so that's where I started to change. That's when I got really interested in food. Right. When I got really interested in wine in particular, when I just thought, man, I'm never going to taste it all. And even if I go around the world and taste every wine that was made this year, we're going to do it all again next yeah, year. And depending
0: on the weather. And,
1: and it'll be the a totally heat, different expression. Right. A new winemaker, and exactly. the, the, the kids take over for the parents. It's all new. Yeah. It's all new.
0: It's exciting stuff, man. It's, it can be overwhelming. But uh, just one final thought that's like itching at me because I want to bring it But I feel like when, when you get to a point where you believe in something, it, it, it's no longer selling. You nope. know, it's like it, because you're if you're truly hospitable and you like to give, you want it becomes like, I want you to experience yeah, 100%. it. Like I want you to to go through what I know is possible. Yeah. And I think if you can get your employees to that point where they're truly excited and they're like,
1: oh. Yeah. Like, so there's this idea I write about in the book and I gave a, just gave a talk about it. I just went to New Zealand. The Restaurant Association of New Zealand flew me down there to give the keynote at their annual conference. It's called Hospa Hui 2023. And we talk about this in, in that talk. And again, we talk about it in the book. But there's this idea of a, of a transaction is that we sit down, right? Our guests sit down and they're expecting to spend money. In fact, they're expecting to be sold to. And if we stop selling to them, they think it's bad service, right? They're expecting us to say, Would you like some water? Would you like a cocktail? Would you like a glass of wine? What would you like for an appetizer? Would you like an entree? Would you like a side dish? Would you like a glass of wine to go with your entree? Would you like dessert? Would you like an after-dinner drink? Would you like coffee? Is there anything else I can get for you? How about our signed cookbook? That's a great meal where we're being offered over and over and over. And, of course, the guests can say no at any time. You still haven't signed your book, for the record. Yeah, yeah. Don't let me leave without a signed book. I'll (laughs) sign the book. (laughs) The transaction, right? What we want on the merchant side, right, when we run a business, is to generate revenue. Is to get people to buy all that we have. It turns out we're in complete alignment with the guests. The guests don't sit around and, and are protecting. Like, oh, I'm not going to buy that. They're sitting down and saying, "What's the best way to experience right. this? This is my Friday night. What's the best way? How can you help me make this the best Friday night I can have?" It's in complete alignment, yeah. and it's not about overserving. It's not about overselling. It's not about selling people that, uh, things that they're not willing to pay for or can't afford. Just making sure that they have the best possible time, that they know all we have to offer, and when you come from that place, it's very, very yeah. generous, and well, it makes it a lot more fun. It's anticipating
0: needs. Oh, you got that steak like that? Like you, you don't realize you're missing out by not pairing that with this wine.
1: What happens? What happens when you're at you're a restaurant room and you get a steak? Right, so you're a customer, right? We're sitting at the restaurant. We each get a steak. It's put in front of us. What do? We, oh, where, where's uh? Where's where's my where's my server? Why won't they sell me something? That's in essence what we're right. saying, right? Where's my server? I want to order a glass of red wine to go with this. I want to eat this now while it's hot. And I want my red wine. But basically we're saying, why won't you let me buy something? Why won't Why won't you let me transact with right. you? This idea of a transaction, right? For an hour, two, three hours at a meal, it's just a series of transactions. And what the customer wants is exactly what we want on the merchant side. Right, so working for Bluefin, what happened they opened
0: your eyes to the 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 world of food through taste sure. but also the significance the importance of educating your staff and taking 100%. the time and energy into helping them understand your menu yep uh, and this is why training is so expensive because when you're doing it right yep. you're paying somebody to be there to actually train you're, you're cooking the food that you know you're not paying for that like these are all sunk costs uh, so but you cannot
1: overlook the power Of good training. A hundred percent. I was so prepared for that. It's funny. Nowadays, when I talk to my clients, I talk about level one, level two, and level three training, right? Level one is the first week, right? How do you get somebody prepared to be able to take a station at the end of the first week, right? And that's true for a cook. It's true for a bartender. It's true for a server. But that's just level one training. For the restaurants, for most of the restaurants, that's training. Right. But really, that's just level one. Level two is answering this question. How do you make it? So, that this new person is as good as our best person at the end of 90 days. Now, is that going to happen? Somebody that's been there four years? Can you do these three classes a week for 12 weeks and make them as good? No, I don't think so. But man, you get one step closer. You get that much closer. And just the trying makes it worth it. And then level three, right? Level three really comes into this play of, how do we get them ready to continue to grow with us? How do we continue to develop them? And really that's staff development, which we do particularly badly in the restaurants. And again, that's something they did really well. So to go one step further, I was working for Bluefin. I went and opened Fiama. I came back, right? I went away for a little while. I opened two other restaurants, came back, and I went to work for Blue Water Grill, which was down in Union Square, uh, which is now uh, no longer, it's closed uh, pre-pandemic. But Blue Water Grill was like, That was an iconic place, right? It was in an old bank building. And again, I worked there and I was friendly with the GM. And I was, again, really curious about food, really interested in wine. And they came to me and they said, hey, we know you're really interested in wine. We'd love to further that development. Would you be interested on, let's say, a Monday night, coming in, putting on a suit and uh, selling wine? We'll show you how the cellar is organized. We'll show you how to ring it in. And basically, you'll sell wine. Now, two important things happen. The wine director there at that restaurant had Sundays and Mondays off. And what they found is that having someone, anyone in a suit talking intelligently, confidently, passionately about wine, even if they had a fraction of the knowledge that the wine director had, just having someone in a suit selling it drove more revenue. Mm -hmm. The other side is that it developed a passion or nurtured talent. Now, I never went on to run a wine program, right? It was obvious the further I got along, I said, oh, that's not what I want to do in this industry, right? The amount of memorization and knowledge and sort of how much time you spend in a cellar and tasting it, I just wasn't interested in that. I love wine, and I love, uh, I love how it interacts with food and sort of the, the, the counterpoint it provides for a meal. But I wasn't interested in running a program. But, man, I learned that right. by doing that every Monday for, I don't know, six months, it cost them nothing. They paid me you know, a couple hundred bucks. It was basically shift pay. Yeah. And what they realized is that, hey, we sell about $2,500 worth of wine. But if we put somebody in a suit and have them running, we sell about $5,000 worth of wine. Right. So somebody was better than nobody. Right. And two birds with one stone, they also helped develop and talent.
0: You don't need a wealth of knowledge to have excitement. Sure. And I think excitement at the end of the day is really what's selling because you just, the 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 person receiving that wants to be just as excited as you, a hundred percent, you know, and and as as long as that 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 excitement is real, yeah, that's what's going to transfer.
1: And you got to know enough so that you're yeah. you can listen to what somebody's looking for and know where to take them on the list, right? You've got it, but I would guess that most people in my position back then, back in let's say two thousand six, two thousand seven, people in my position knew more than the majority of the guests, and so. You're just helping them. It's right. a generous It's a generous thing. So it's another example. So when we talk about that training and you talk about- this this level three or two? That's the level three, okay. how you develop that. And so I was not the only one who was offered that. There were other people who actually did say, oh my God, I do want to be doing this. And they did go down that path.
0: Yeah. So if level one is just drinking from the fire hose, getting the information that's right. in,
1: level two is- That first 90 days. Okay. How do you get them to be as good as your best person? Got it.
0: And then three is- creating opportunity and, and really like helping them self almost self-actualize that's and right. grow.
1: That's a great way yeah. of thinking about it, right? How do we continue to develop them? How do we let them feed their curiosity and figure out which way they want? I figured out that's not what I wanted to do. I love the opportunity. I learned a ton. I had fun. It was a win-win all the way around. But at the end of it, I learned, oh, no, I'm not going to go run a beverage program. That's not the direction I want to go. But that just helped me define what I was interested in doing. Got it. So...
0: On that vein of helping you define what you were interested in doing, what was your continuation, your evolution in the restaurant industry?
1: So during that time, I also went with Br Guest. I went and opened uh, two other restaurants that they ran. What's Ven- the
0: year now? Just help oh, me
1: figure. Man, out I guess year. this is around two thousand six, seven. Okay, they opened a restaurant called Barca Eighteen, which was a collaboration. It was a Spanish restaurant, a collaboration between that uh, company and, of all people, Eric Repair. Um, that was a cool project to be a I'm part sure. of ill-fated, but a cool project to yep. be a part of. Uh, and there was another restaurant they opened called Vento, which is, uh, down in the meatpacking district that had a club under, uh, underneath. And that was a cool project to be a part of. Um, and I learned a ton there. So yeah. I helped with those two projects, uh, before eventually then leaving to go do other stuff. And that's when I went, uh, when I started working as a maitre d. And so, uh, my first True, true Maitre d' job was at Craft Restaurant, uh, Tom Colicchio's oh, okay. flagship on 19th Street. Why
0: is none of this on your LinkedIn profile?
1: I know, you it know? doesn't have to be. Man, like <laughs> there's so many there's so many things there and I just I focus on I focus on other stuff. I mean, if I put every restaurant that I worked with or opened, it just wouldn't I could totally
0: see you being a Maitre d'. And for the record, host or Maitre d' is my favorite position in a
1: restaurant. Yeah. It's it, it was my favorite too and that's really where that's so I write
0: both podcast hosts. yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Restaurant podcast. Listen, don't uh, don't think that hasn't escaped me that I went and got a theater degree. And now I uh, speak into a microphone, you know, <laughs> to take the stage. You know, it all, it well, all dude, helps.
0: You, you do great work to your production. Oh, you. Um, like you like I, like your work is sharp. You know, like Thanks. you're a true professional. Listen, uh, this
1: is a this is a pleasure that, for me to be here on this because uh, because of how much you've inspired so many podcasters, myself included. Well, thank you. Famously, before we hit record, I told you I said when I started my podcast, I said I, I don't want to do any interviews because I just thought number one, the internet's full; they don't need any more interviews, and number two. You're interviewed everybody. You've, you've, you've done everybody. So what else do I have to say? Now, I, I have since gone back and I've added in uh, interviews, but I tried for a very long They're time. They're fun. It's fun not time. I do. I, you know, yeah. And I've found, my, I've found my way into it, and, and they end up being a different kind of thing. Yeah. But you yeah. S-
0: you said something uh, during your journey, your come up, all the stops along the way. It kind of struck a little bit of a chord with me, and it was so subtle, but this idea. So you worked with Eric Repair. Uh, I can't remember the name of the restaurant. The yeah, Barça eighteen. Okay, uh, I think that people look at these individuals like Eric Repair or any other famous restaurant chef, right? And they think, wow, like they just figured it out. They're just successful. But like how many restaurants did Eric Repair partner with or work on that didn't work out long term?
1: I'm sure there. I'm sure there are a ton. Right,
0: and we we never remember the failures, yeah. but we we'll always focus on the successes. But um, it, it, even the best take a swing and miss sometimes. Totally. Which is, I think a good little teaser for what we're going to be talking about later is like how to be more intentional when you're opening and not necessarily like having an idea and trying to squeeze it into a market, but reverse engineering. That's right.
1: An idea. It's a key idea yeah. in the book. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So um, that's a little bit of a teaser of what we're we'll going to be talking about later. <laughs> but um, I mean, along this idea of like your evolution, I think we started down this path. If I asked you, like who were you, if, if you were a blank slate then, what was, what was your evolution been? Any more of these like key aha moments as far as things you know now that you wish somebody who was you back in 2003 or four knew.
1: So for me, it was this curiosity that I'm, I'm, I'm never going to taste all the food. Yeah, I'm never, that, that there was always a new flavor, a new flavor combination. The, the, that spirits and beer and wine that, that like, these are extraordinary things that we get to serve and, uh, and be a part of every single night. That was really key for me. Um, that there was always something new to try. There was some new experience, to capture. The other one for me was that I really loved opening restaurants. Um, I liked the pressure of it. Um, I liked sort of what that energy was. Um, it requires a certain amount of organization. It requires a certain amount of fortitude to do it and to do it well. But I loved that and I felt like I really, um, I really did well under that pressure. I was also really good at teaching, I felt. So I was really good at sort of training people and getting people ready for it, which is very much what I do now in my coaching program right so i work with owners and operators all over the world and and so it's just an extension of that if there's anything i've learned i feel like it's my responsibility to pass it along because uh because there's no reason to hoard the knowledge right like i figured it out because i just happened to work with somebody who was really good at teaching it to me well i was honestly
0: afraid to start my podcast and i don't know if you've Hmm. got this feeling too but i was afraid that because people are so traditionally conservative with their information in the industry i felt that way at one point where like you weren't supposed to bring trade information to other restaurants like if you could get your hand on an operations manual and then bring it to another restaurant that was gold 20 years ago you know and and i was afraid that if i started asking these successful restaurant tours like what are your secrets it'd be like scram kid yeah like why like who do you think i'm not going to tell you what i've learned yeah Um, is that true? Do you think that's true? I think,
1: I think restaurant owners and operators are incredibly siloed. It's something I talk a lot about. I think it's the power specifically of the mastermind I run is that I deal with a lot of pyramids. A lot of people in my group are at the top of the pyramid. There's no one else to talk to. Right. And they're far away from the other pyramids and I get to put them on a call for two hours every day. How many people are in each one of your masterminds? So we run three groups now, right now we've got almost a hundred people across the three different groups. So 30 people in each group. Wow. A little bit more. How long is each session? Two hours. So when they come into the program, they join for two hours. Uh, They meet two hours every week for an entire year. And there's a specific structure to it. But the great part about it, or one of the great sort of side effects of it, is that you get to be around a lot of other people who are juggling and see the way they do it. We look at different P&Ls. We look at their contracts. We look at the agreements they have, at the processing fees, at the agreements they have with the different purveyors that so many people use. And they can just make themselves better. Oh, I didn't know I could ask for that. Oh, yeah, go ask your purveyor for that. Okay, I'll do that. I didn't know the company was given that rate for processing. I'm going to go. We just make each other better. I just and that 's something that I got from opening a lot of restaurants, so we 're coming to the point of the uh, of my career where I went and opened a restaurant, a restaurant, a restaurant, a restaurant. And you do. You just bring all that stuff, right? The, the, uh, the training manual. Right. The, the budgets, the, the critical paths, all the things that you use, you bring along and it makes you better the next time. This is why I get so excited because what I'm
0: learning over the past 10 years I've been doing this is that, yeah, people are starting to talk more. There's also yeah. like resources, like resources for people to connect better than ever before. Like you can – maybe you're not comfortable talking to the people on your block about what your strategies are, but somebody on the other side of the country – you know, like in, like we're sharing information better than ever before. And I, I think that the restaurant industry is transforming.
1: I, I think it absolutely is. And it was the thing that really talked me into, convinced me to do the mastermind. Yeah. When somebody said to me, you're being selfish. You're just not seeing the value that you provide people, right? You are connected to a lot of owners and operators through the podcast. And now you have the chance to connect all these people that are listening to you and you can connect them together. And it was that. It's that sense of generosity, of selflessness, of like, oh, well, if that's something that I take for granted. Yeah. Right. But I think
0: what's gonna end up happening and you're seeing it happen is that the, the industry is transforming. It's no longer becoming the place you go where you can't get a job anywhere else. Yep. I mean, well, it is hard to find people right now, but I think what's happening is like you're you're seeing you're seeing more like equity sharing models and the, I just think the way that we're going is in a place where it's, it's professionals, career professionals, and business partners. I think it will take
1: a head. long time to get there. So it's funny, right? We started yeah. off this conversation talking about my trajectory. I took the side door or the back door into this industry. I wanted nothing to do with it because it was a constant reminder of my failure, my failure in my other uh, my other career. And I think we have to address that. I think we have to acknowledge that, that there are a bunch of people in this industry who love it, who are passionate, who are driven, who went to school for it, right, got their degree and they came in there and they can't wait to do it. And I think that probably makes up 20 or 30% of the people in the industry. A lot of other people just stumbled into it. It's all I could get. I just, it's a, it's a low barrier of entry. Right. And I think it's okay to take those people like me and nurture them and show them. Did you know this is all this thing has to offer? And I think once we get better at that, Taking somebody from where they are and showing them where they can be, that's when this industry will really transform.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, there's no shortage of opportunity here. I think the other variable, too, is that there's spinoff opportunity. There's so many satellite businesses that have come out of the restaurant industry, whether it's coaching or whether it's a a tech startup. Like you figured out a solution in your restaurant to solve a problem. Well, I can turn this into a product you know yeah. and the the cool thing about the world we live in is that there's these we're, we're breaking through walls every week it feels like where there is a barrier that whether that be i don't know an example is like ai right like ai lets us do so much so like what kind of new opportunities that can unlock in the restaurant industry 100%. somebody hasn't tapped into that yet yep. like there's just constantly these barriers we're breaking down and they they're universal you know as far as the, the the industries that are affected by those barriers that are being broken down. there's
1: so much opportunity that comes out. Just think about everything there is to do in a restaurant, right? You can bus, you can be a runner, you can serve, you can be a bartender, you can manage, you can be a cook, you can be a dishwasher, you can be a chef, you can be an accountant, right? You can work in a in a PR company, you can work in a marketing agency that works with restaurants, and then, like you said, you start spinning out and seeing all these satellites, right? You can go coach, you can go consult, you can go sell software. Right, you can go create software. You can go create a solution. Right, that somebody needs. Yeah. Right, and you rest- can grow the food. You yeah. can import the food, export the food, distribute the food, help prep the. I mean, there's so many
0: different things to do. Yeah, and like again, you pointed this out in the book that the restaurant industry is so unique that it's hard for people who specialize in those verticals to translate what they know to the industry because it's so foreign for so yep. many other people. Yep. So if you come through the industry and you just and you discover these verticals, you speak that special language. Yep. So you kind of, you know, like it's I, I just think like to your point that this industry, the opportunity is here. And when people figure that out the, the room for transformation is so great. Um, and I'll say this because it's part of my mission statement that if we transform the industry, we will transform the world. hundred percent. I talk, so I talk people.
1: all about this with my clients. We do this exercises, mission, vision, and values, right? Which you can go on any big corporate fortune 500 company and you can find some BS word salad on their website. But if you think about your mission, like what do I hope to accomplish? Right? As a restaurant I work with down in South Carolina called smoked Smoked. Their mission is to become the best restaurant in Colombia. That's it. So that's their North Star. That helps define where they source food, who they hire to be the chef, how they put their beverage program together, and all that. They strive to be the best restaurant in Colombia. And that brings us to vision, right? Which is assuming we accomplish our mission, what's our vision you know, for our possible, community, yeah. right? And that speaks to exactly what you're talking about here, which is that. If we succeed in becoming the best restaurant in Columbia, South Carolina, we believe we can be integral to putting Columbia on the map as a dining destination. Everybody knows Charleston, but do they know Columbia? And so suddenly then we're talking about elevating not just them, not just the owners and the people who work there, but elevating an entire community. Right? right? That helps the hotels. That helps the taxis. That helps all the other restaurants because if they're coming in for one restaurant, they're going to go to lots of other restaurants. Yeah. Um,
0: and I mean, this is enlightened leadership. Uh, I just had, and it's killing me that I can't remember the name of his book. I just had him on the show, but Matt Pepsel from predictive index. He's the president of predictive index. He talks about this, this idea of the ripple effect and like, mm-hmm. how do we, how do we transform the world? How do we transform a community? It starts with you and yep. you work on you and then you work on the people that are closest to you, family and the people that you literally are shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with every day at work, yep. then that that spills over into your organization, right? And that spills over to the community. That yep. spills over to, you know, the greater. It just keeps going, right? And we just lift people up. And it's happening in the restaurant industry so often. That's obvious. Yeah. That's obvious. It, it,
1: Even where it was 20 years ago. The most generous people. Yep. The most giving people. Oh, of course we have them. The, so yeah. what happened? What happened the second the pandemic hit, right? The restaurant industry
0: kicked in and they were there for the community. They did.
1: Everything right. Yeah. So the fact that it took so long to come to the rescue of the industry, and that's not—it's not about getting into the, all of that. Yeah. But man, without question, without you know, all of the fears that the, all the owners have, and I'm sure those listeners will recognize that our industry jumped in, turned into soup kitchens and pantries, delivered food to first responders. <laughs> I mean, everybody, yeah. right? Jumped in, right? That's amazing. It is. Given, right, so you think of what it was in March 2020, April, May, right, what those first three months were, and then how difficult their next 18 months were, right, without, they ran into the fire as an industry. We all ran into the fire without even thinking twice about it. Like, that's incredible. Like, that's profoundly
0: moving. Yeah. I think now's a good time to take a break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back to continue discussing whatever we happen to discuss. Who knows where we'll end up? restaurant unstoppable is partnering with core children of restaurant employees core children of restaurant employees invites you to learn more about their mission and their fall campaign serving up hope core is an industry-focused nonprofit that provides financial grants to restaurant employees with children who face a life-altering medical crisis or natural disaster. Serving Up Hope is a national fundraising campaign and an opportunity for the restaurant industry to come together to serve those who will serve us daily. There is complete flexibility for when and how you raise money, and Core has ideas to help. Whether you choose to make a flat donation or fundraise through in-store promotions core provides turnkey resources to make your partnership as simple and successful as possible. It does not stop there. Brands who commit to raising $15,000 or more for core during this campaign, receive logo recognition on the wall of hope, a nationally promoted landing page that highlights the companies that have chosen to come together for our industry. Choose to participate and You will help build a culture of caring and demonstrate your support. Support for employees and those that qualify for a grant across the country. More than 70% of core grantees are single mothers and they critically need your help to continue to provide funds. So why wait showcase your commitment and leadership to help employees in our industry and sign up for the serving up hope campaign today. Visit core to learn more together. We can serve up hope for restaurant families this fall restaurant unstoppable network is back baby and we're better than ever before we already have six live events in the works and we're just getting started if you sign up for restaurant unstoppable network right now you can be a part of these six live events we have casey anton the author of profit first for restaurants talking about profit first we have christine miles the author of what is it costing you not to listen and it's costing you a lot tom sterner the author of the practicing mind, fully engaged in it 's just a thought to help you get into that right that right mindset and to will your future into existence. we have Kathleen Wood, the woman behind one thing who 's helped so many of our past guests focus and channel their energy to doing one thing really well. We have Mike Payton, the former chief visionary officer or whatever title you want to call it, but he was the guy behind the Entrepreneurial Operating System, EOS, uh, the, the the Traction Library books. We're going to get him in the network to talk about EOS. And we have Dave Nitzel and Dave Domzalski, co-authors of The Bar Shift and Hospitality DNA, to talk about their findings in their most recent book, Hospitality DNA. We have a great lineup coming your way. And all you have to do is head over to restaurantstoppablecom slash whatever the episode number is. You'll find a link and a banner for RU Network click the link, get a 30-day no-strings-attached trial, and the first 50 people to sign up will get a free Restaurant Unstoppable t-shirt. And if you opt in to the annual plan, I'll throw in a Restaurant Unstoppable hat and a mug. But you got to act fast because these are going to go real quick, I have a feeling. And thank you for your support. All right, we are back. And I mean what do you, what do you want to talk about? I mean we're still I feel like we still haven't really kind of gone through your career. We left off you Let's were Let's keep a going. D. It gets interesting. Yeah, we just keep going down these rabbit holes. I had a feeling we would <laughs> as two people who are, you know, just so passionate about the industry and just talk. Um but you were a major d. That was your first yeah. role. So were you um
1: were you a partner in the business where you hired it was out just maitre. the maitre d got it just hired to be the maitre d to run the and front this was door 2007 it was 2007 i went to go work at craft restaurant i worked there for about a year and a half two years something like that have you
0: had tom on the show yet
1: i haven't no he's a hard I, one to nail down he is a hard one to nail down <laughs> it was um it was a really great experience there a very difficult experience and, and sort of trying in in other ways that we we won't get into but it was ultimately really good because there, there's things that they did really right there and um more than that selfishly i can say that's really where i fell in love with running the front door because i then did that over and over and over over the next several years um that running the front door running the front good. door i really fell in love with that being the the first point of contact taking responsibility for filling a book right that's where revenue begins making sure that your um your reservation book is full full with the right people making sure the people were recognized right so all of that so I went and worked there. I went and opened Dovetail, John Fraser's restaurant on the Upper West Side, which is now no more, but John's gone on to really sort of big deal stuff. I went to open uh, Bedford Post up in Westchester, New York, uh, for of all people, Were you Richard Gear.
0: And all these opportunities. I about? was. Okay.
1: So I was the maitre d at Craft, I was the maitre d at Dovetail, I was the maitre d and the AGM up at Bedford Post came down and opened a place called AZ. No. What was it called? Table 8 called Table 8 right in the Cooper Square Hotel, which is now uh, an Andre Balage hotel. And then went and opened Avoche Columbus with Mitzi Robbins.
0: And what time period is this?
1: This was like 2007 to 2011, okay. 12, somewhere in there. I opened a series of restaurants, all as the maitre d'. Now, I got really good at opening restaurants because I knew everybody's face. I knew all the critics, so I knew who they were. I knew how to play that game, right? There's a thing when the critic walks in.
0: And they're like, God damn it, this guy again. You can't, you're <laughs> <We're> not, busted. <laughs> they make
1: their reservation with an alias. Yeah. I'm not supposed to recognize them. We just show them a regular time, but I became valuable yeah. to a lot of companies because I knew who all these people were, right? I knew who Frank Bruni was, who Sam Sifton was. I knew who Adam Platt was. I knew who Danielle Freeman was. I knew who on and on and on, all these people, Yeah.
0: How do you feel about critics not really having the same leverage they used to? It's interesting,
1: right? Yeah. I mean, I think what's happening. I is, love it.
0: Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I don't think a couple people should dictate the success of an entire organization because you and your particular palette and I don't know, preferences or uh, maybe you got somebody who was having a bad day. Totally agree. It's like, totally agree. On. The
1: democratization of criticism, right. has happened over the last, I'll say five or six years. And I think it's largely great. Yeah. What's not great. Or what I think is we're losing a little bit of it is having a food writer, a restaurant critic sort of mark time and sort of show us what's happening and really have their finger on the pulse. The best, the best example I can give of this is Ruth Reichel. So Ruth Reichel was the New York Times uh, food critic for many many years and you go back and read her reviews when she was in the the chief critic desk and she just had the finger on the pulse for what was happening right and that she was there over like late 80s and 90s and there was so much incredible stuff that was going on in the city as dining was really changing yeah. right so Gotham Barn Grill opens in 1984 uh, Union Square Cafe opens in 84, uh, Gramercy Tavern opens in 94. There's all this important stuff that's happening right before and after that, right? Um, all these chefs that are that are coming up and, and how Alice Waters and what was happening in California was really making its way to New York. You had Michaels come in in that time and you had uh, Jonathan Waxman. He's got his restaurant jams. That becomes a big deal, right? Like, when you see what happens and they're able to mark time and really show us how we're supposed to feel about it. And I think something really, things happen incredible in our industry at every step of the way. Every five year span is important. Every 10 year span is important. But having a really great critic there to to show us, like look what's happening. Yeah, This is happening, this is worth paying attention to. That has been lost the last several years and I think that's a shame.
0: Yeah, I hear that. I mean, it's weird. It's like a double edged sword because at the same time, they almost pigeonhole the industry and saying this is what good is. But sure. but,
1: but who's to say what good is? So on that side of the fence, yeah. yeah, I think that's a bad. I think that's a bad byproduct of it. Right, right. They, so, they're, to, they're the kingmakers. Yeah, right? to
0: your point in the book, you're, you you want to diversify. You want hundred
1: You want to be unique hundred percent. But we're all
0: just trying to go and get the same recognition from the same people it kind of it, i don't know
1: it's weird it's i don't i don't have the answers but now we're talking about something really interesting right. which is as newspapers have been declining right and that's where this has come from because we're left with only one critic or some newspapers with no critic right right in the new york times years ago they lost the 25 and under category so every week there weren't stars uh, that were given
0: the twenty five under the age of the twenty
1: five and under could you dine there oh, for twenty five dollars and under? New York, got it. <laughs> twenty five and under. There was a column there that was reviewing sort of lesser restaurants, cheaper yeah. restaurants, more neighborhood restaurants. A lot of quote unquote ethnic. The, the Michelin food.
0: star Bib, whatever they call it. The uh, what's that called? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, Where the Bib Gourmand. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah,
1: the, you make that, and then you graduate to the star. Right. So There used to be two reviews every every week. There was the restaurant review that had stars affixed to it. And then there was the 25 and under. And so it wasn't just about, oh, these are the 50, 52 reviews that are given every year or every, you know, over the course of the year. So I think we lost, we lose something there. Now, that being said, we see now food on TV in a very real way and with streaming services like Netflix and, you know, on and on. So, Something's gained. Yeah, I think it's there's a decentralization of it going on where sure. now
0: anybody can start a media outlet. You and I both have yep. media outlets. Yep. You know where now it's uh, you know it's you could have a you don't even need to have like a podcast or a website. You just have like a social handle where you're, yeah. you're a critic, right? Not, yeah, you know I'll put that in air quotes. Um, yeah. But I think, yeah, what you're seeing is like there's just a diversification of preference. Where people
1: get their information. But I love
0: it, though. I think I I, I do love it. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I hate social media. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. But like, I think that it's good that we're decentralizing the filter of what's good and not. Because there's so many different, like I go out for different reasons than you go out. Sure. I like to go out because I like to hang out with people at restaurants. Like I I enjoy talking to the bartenders. You know, like for me, it's 100% the people that are there. And not I could care less about the food if I'm being yeah. as long as it's good. That's funny. As long as it fell over the belly, you know, yeah, as long as there's not like something gross in it. Yep. as long as it's safe and as long as I'm satisfied. Yeah, I'm a happy cup. I'm yeah. a happy camper. I want to I want to go someplace and have be and be recognized yeah. and, I love and that. recognize the consistency and the people that are, I'm seeing, you know, but yep. like that's just me. Some people want to wine and dine.
1: I don't think it's just you. I think it's amazing the amount of attention we put on the food and the wine right. given comparatively how little most people know about food and wine. I've been in the industry for 23 years if I look at all the uh, restaurants I worked at in college waiting tables. So I've been doing this for 23 years and I feel woefully unknowledgeable about what I do for a living. Right.
0: Yeah. Especially and when I, your job is talking to other
1: people who know way more than you do about it. So this is, this <laughs> yeah. is the thing, right? So... And uh, this is coming from somebody who's been in the industry for 23, almost 24 years. So think about the average person sitting at your table. I think they actually care a lot more about everything you just said than we give them credit for, which is um, which is meant to uh, inspire us, right? That if we just not saying we don't care about the food, we should care about the food and the beverage program and all of that. But man, they know sound, they know music they know lighting right way better than they know human food behavior. They know human behavior. They yeah. know what it means to talk to somebody who's actually looking at you in the eye. Right. So like the yeah. amount of things that we focus on and the amount of things that we are level one training, right. Are shot out of the cannon, you know, be polite. Here are the steps of service rather than taking time. Like this is how we take care of people. This is how we show we care. This is how we actually, this is how we listen. We never talk about that. That's nowhere in our training, mm-hmm. how we listen to a table. Right. I am curious. Um, I mean, you started
0: getting into the whole maitre d' and like why maitre d'. But what was it specifically about being a maitre d' that really sucked you in? It's
1: a great question, and I appreciate you asking me. Number one, I think a restaurant needs to make money to succeed, and I think someone should be responsible. Which, which someone should be responsible for filling the seats. Yeah, I I liked that about it. I believe a first impression and a last impression is way more important than just about anything that comes between it. Right. I like curating, manufacturing that experience. More than that then, I liked, I mean I was in 2007, I was googling guests long before it was written about in books. I was the only person who knew who I knew of the other maitre d's I knew, of the other restaurants where I'd worked. I didn't know anybody who was googling their guests. When I was at Kraft, I would spend about an hour or two every single day Googling everybody on my list. Because mm. many people we knew, there were plenty of people we didn't know. Right. And if there was anything we should know, I wanted to know. Mm. Because it just gets us to know. Number one, it shows we care right. because we do. If somebody was coming into your
0: house, wouldn't you want to know something about them? It was a right? stranger coming into That's my right.
1: house? That's right. Let's learn more about them and let's see if we can make this better for them. Yeah. right. Um, How much time would you give on each guest? For To to Google them? Yeah. You can find a pretty pretty substantial amount of information in just about five or 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. I would spend about an hour and a half to two hours every day doing it. I felt it was important and I pretty much did that every job after that. I liked doing that. I liked taking the time to get to know who was gonna come in and figuring out what are we gonna do? Where are we gonna put them? Right. What can we do for them? How can we make this as great as possible? Right. Right? What
0: can we do that, Is totally unexpected that they would be blown away if we just paid attention to this little detail that could totally pivot the entire experience.
1: You're going to look up somebody and you're going to find out, oh, they're the CFO at such and such company. Right. Okay. So they're really high up. They're a really big deal there. So when they come in with their six top, I'm going to know right away, are they entertaining clients or are they here with friends? Right. And if they're entertaining clients, that's a certain kind of experience. Because if the CFO goes out of their way to dine with clients, that's a big, big deal. Right. Or with that tells me something about what that meal needs to be, right. right? where they need to go, how we need to treat them. Likewise, if they come in and I see them, and you can tell right away. Right. You see their mood. Right? Oh, they're here with friends. That tells me something else. This guy who works as hard as they do. Doing this very hard thing at a very high level with a lot of pressure, man, they need this even more, right? Like it just tells me something yeah. about how to engage with them and do, how to make their night better. Do you have a story
0: or a memory of how you just taking this little extra time to do some digging, to, to become familiar with your guests,
1: just blew your guest away? So it's funny that one of the stories, and there, there are a ton of them because we did this every single yeah. night. And then I got my team, my hostesses and all of that. This is a totally, a little innocuous thing. So I went and opened Dovetail for uh, John Frazier. Uh, went on to get a Michelin star. It was this tiny little jewel box uh, restaurant on the Upper West Side. Um, very challenging. I was very proud of what we were able to do. But I was Googling one night and there was, um, there was a woman on the books and I looked her up and she's a ballerina. With the New York City Ballet. And I was like, huh, well, the New York City Ballet is in session tonight. Like, why is she eating dinner? And I did a little research and I found out she had just been injured. She just blew out her ACL. Oh, her entire career, her entire season is out, maybe her career. And it turns out that she had just gotten engaged. Right. So, man, what a bittersweet week. <laughs> she had just awesome. gotten engaged Down. and her oh, season, length. maybe her career is done. And she walked in and I, and the first thing I did, I said, and for the life of me I mean it's now been 15 16 years and I'll say her name is Kristen I said are you are you Kristen she said how do you know I had looked up her picture I'd seen what she looked like I said you're with City Ballet aren't you and she said oh yeah I said I grew up dancing at the rock down in Philadelphia so the rock school was the big ballet school down in Philadelphia and I got to know Francis and Andy Vayette Andy Vayette is one of the big principals for the company I said so Ballet runs through my veins. It was in yeah. a, my previous life, and I had danced with Andy Vayette. She said, "Oh, I love Andy, right?" Because Andy is one of the big principals. Yeah. And I said, "I just, you know, I, I saw, I, I, I heard about the injury, and she sort of a little cloud came over. And I said, and I'm sure it's a really weird week, but I also think you're celebrating something this week." And she brightened right back yeah. up, right? And I said, "We're going to make today, really, we're going to make tonight really special." Like I'm sure this is a really weird week that somebody sat there and looked her in the eye and said. I think this is a really weird week for you. And her fiance was right there. And her fiance was just like, like blown away that, like, somebody had taken the time, like, on the one level, maybe a little creepy that some guy went so deep there. Yeah. Now, does every maitre d uh, have a ballet background? No, but I happened to. Right. And I knew a lot of the people. I knew her repertoire. I learned that because that was in my performing arts career before. And so I knew that. And I could see her. And just meet her where she was on this particular week, right? And she was like, wow. I said, come on back. I gave her the best table in the house. We started them with a complimentary champagne. We sent a little chocolates at the end. It was like, but really what we did is I just said, hey, I see you at the
0: beginning. Mm-hmm. And like, man. That's all we want to be really above security. So looking at Maslow's hierarchy. That's rights, right above your food and shelter security. Do you see me? That's it. That is
1: how important it is. We just, I mean, wise people say, right? We just want to feel important. Right. Our job in the industry is to make people feel important. Because guess what? They are. They are important for our survival as a business. We need them. They're important we literally to us. need each other to survive. We literally, we literally, we need are pack other. animals. It's yeah. It, it's it's so easy. All all we have to do is be seen, right? Well, and yeah. that's all the things we talk about, all the steps of service, all the the marketing tactics and the software and all that it should all help us do this thing better. And if I'm really honest, I feel like that's something we've gotten away from. And what I'm feeling in the last 18 months, I'll say, is this move towards technology has forced a lot of people to say, okay, yeah, yeah, technology, but how can we be more human? And if we can use the technology to actually be more hospitable, then we will win. Yeah. Um,
0: How did it make you feel when you saw that she felt seen?
1: That's it. That's the whole thing we do. Mm. That's the pineapple in the front stoop. Either you're in this industry and you want nothing to do with it. You hate it. It's a reminder of your failure in other ways and et cetera. Or you embrace that what we do is extraordinary. Not everyone can do it and not everyone can do it well. And so if you've got the opportunity to do it, this is from my dad. If you're going to do it, you might as well do it well. Yeah. Right? Right. And I think everyone has the threshold to do it well if they want.
0: Yeah. And I think there's a special feeling we get for being seen for seeing, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, like being having someone recognize that we took the time to see and appreciate uh, and to, to, to have that reciprocation in that moment. Yep. I think that's the magic. You know
1: that's that's what keeps us sucked in. You know what's so funny is that I spend more time thinking about the hospitality that I was a part of on the receiving end. I spend a lot more time thinking about that than I do thinking about the hospitality that I've given. Right. Because by focusing on what I what I had happened to me or how I felt, by nature, it's just going to make me right better at it. When you ask me, oh, is there something you know? Can you give an example? The first six examples I thought of were when it was done to me. Mm. I had to really think about, okay, let me see it let me see a good story. I had to think more deeply about, okay, when did I turn that around? And I think when we when we actually get really great hospitality, um, I think it's it's rare and extraordinary. But I mean, I think that's the the magic of hospitality is that when we see others,
0: the like I'm I see you right now, and as a result of me seeing you, making eye contact, you see me. And I think that Sure. You know, like it's it seems kind of it's funny to talk about, but I think that's the magic that's what people get sucked into is being seen for seeing and it sounds weird to say that uh you did say something and this is going to be a total rabbit hole i'm willing to go down it though um as removing i can't remember exactly what you said but the 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 evolution of how we exist on this planet less literally being seen and now being seen is translated into like a like you know yeah a heart oh you saw me yeah you know like um, and how we're kind of diluting the quality of relationships uh, and I, I'm curious wh- like where do you think we're headed in that terms of like as as the, the the digital world continues to evolve, and certain
1: things come out of the digital world the The word I keep coming back to is this idea of intentionality, right I think it's forcing us to be more intentional, right How many times do you sit at dinner? and you you say to your dining partner like Let, let's put our phones away right or there's a there's a there's an understanding right honestly yeah i i forget my phone
0: in the car half the time
1: perfect <laughs> perfect <laughs> but now there's this thing right where they say there's i mean you can go on amazon right yeah. there's a basket there's a little lockbox. Right. there's a something hey at the dinner table we don't do that we're we're having conversations about this right we're being right. intentional right we meaning human beings are being intentional about how they engage with their phones. I think what it does really ultimately is going to put in greater stark relief what we do, right? Now that we can travel anywhere in the world via Instagram or TikTok and see beautiful places, it doesn't replace the thing. You know, it just makes us want to go be a part of it even
0: more. Yeah, I see it's, it's a good way to promote something or to, to, to generate that feeling of FOMO, right? Like you see other people doing it, you want me to, Right. Uh, I was curious. Um, I think I wonder if there's going to be a mass exodus sometimes. And I'm so hopeful that this is the case, um, that we're starting to learn more about the human element, the human variable, what makes us tick, what do we have to do to be happy? Mm -hmm. And the, the, the answer to that, to that being happy is right in front of us, you know, being around people being and taking the time to be present with people and seeing people and to feel like you belong to something. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, the internet, to a degree, provides that these like, digital communities and stuff. There's value there. There's definitely like you I mean you you host your masterminds, right? Perfect example of the power of the internet and how it can be so transformative. What happens when we can no longer decipher between what is real and what is not? What is human and what is automated? An algorithm. Uh, an That's AI, getting harder, right? An AI generated piece of content. That's getting harder. Uh, where it's getting to the point where like I. Somebody could create a, like a video podcast of me with me having nothing to do with it.
1: Oh, somebody just sent me a version of my podcast that was not me. They just scanned 200 plus episodes of my podcast and they wrote a script that I never your said voice. They and they use my voice and my face. likeness. Yeah. And they said, just so you know, this is what's coming. I, but I think Wild. that's good.
0: Honestly, you want to know why I think that's good? Because I think. At the end of the day, the only way to escape it is to get the fuck off of it. Pardon yeah. my language. <laughs> and I, I, I think that we don't realize what damage we're doing to ourselves. And I think that only time will tell. Just like it takes 10 years of eating a really shitty diet for you yeah. to get fat. And yeah, unhealthy. I think
1: you're right. I think you're right. It goes back to your question, yeah. right? Do I think there will be a mass excess? I think there, I think I there will be. there will be. What I know about People human think nature, you know, though, like, it will never change. Like, it won't wait.
0: be. A, the pendulum swings, my
1: friend. But it's because people are thinking, oh, we're going to run away from, right? We're not going to run away from it. We're going to run to something else.
0: People are selfish. And when they realize what's in it for them to not be on the platform. Sure. Do you think people prefer to eat kale over cheeseburgers? No, No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I fucking miss cheeseburgers, man. (laughs) Like they eat kale because it's what's in it for me. I want to feel good. I want to look good. I want to be seen. Yeah. You know? Yep. And once you start to realize that you will feel better, if you, I'm more go, cynical than you are, I'm, and I, think I don't I sound think cynical of thinking this,
1: I don't think Maybe that I'm people optimistic. will do that. I don't think it's the broccoli analogy, right? Like, yeah. I think people do it because it's it's good for them. Nobody eats broccoli. Psycho, it's good for them.
0: Psychographics. So what do people think of me when they see me eating this? Sure, kale?
1: sure. But there's too many psychographics embedded with being on there. I think the key, in my opinion is we'll get off these destructive platforms when there's something else that we should be doing instead and i think it's up to the yeah. next generation of sort of Which is, builders engineers to say what's the next thing what does it look Gen like Gen Z, man. Yeah. Was it Gen X? Not Gen it's X. Gen, Gen Z. Z.
0: Sorry, i don't know what Gen Z. That was years ago. Gen
1: X is retiring. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Gen Z. Um yeah. Anyway, I was curious. I, I had to ask, but um, we're kind of we're bouncing all over the place, man. I'm really enjoying the conversation. I can't believe we're already an hour in. I might have to go pause and take this meeting and come back and finish the interview <laughs> with you because I'm really enjoying the time. We haven't even gotten into some of the stuff we we're hoping to talk about today. Um, But I think when did you transition from working in the industry to working with the industry?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Man. You're asking really good questions. It was eight years ago, give or take. I, I always say that because my son just turned eight. Yeah. Uh, that wasn't an accident. Like, like, I started my business about eight years ago. Um, I didn't want to do the long hours and the late nights and the weekends and the holidays and all of that. My first Thanksgiving dinner with my family was in 2020 during the pandemic. It's the first time I ever had Thanksgiving, because Thanksgiving in restaurants, at least in New York City, is all hands on deck. Mm. It's, a, it's a big, big revenue day. Um, and I knew as my son was going to be born that I wanted to be around for dinners at night. I wanted to be there for soccer and swimming on the weekends. And I wanted to be there for Thanksgiving and, and Christmas Eve and, and things like that. So I, was, I made a deliberate decision to get out of the operations side of things. It was around the same time that I was getting really into marketing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was always—I've always been an amateur photographer. Um, I started shooting when I was in high school. I sort of did it off and on for years and years after that. And what I started noticing was that uh, as Instagram—it's apropos that we're, we're making it's this jump—as Instagram became more popular, right? As Facebook became more popular, uh, it became obvious that restaurants needed a steady stream of content, right? A steady stream of high-quality content on a consistent basis. And I was like well, I can do that. I know restaurants. I know food. I know I know what they need. And I know photography. I know how to work with light. So I can do it. Um, and so at the time, I said, I-, I wonder if I can replace my income, the income I'm making managing restaurants. I wonder if I could replace that income and just go work with restaurants and help them. Because at least at the time, you know, 2014, 15, they didn't have a strong social media presence. I don't think anybody really knew what it was or that they should be doing it, or they could be doing it for relatively little. So I started doing that. I basically said, I'm going to start my own agency. I didn't say that. That's just what ended up happening. I said, I'm going to start my own agency and do social media marketing for restaurants. I'm learning a lot about it. I became, again, really interested in marketing. Um, And so I said, I'm going to do it. Can I pay, you know, can I find a couple of restaurants who are willing to pay me a thousand bucks a month so that I can pay my bills? And then I'll still be working hard, but I'll have more flexibility. I can determine my schedule so I can be home for nights and weekends and holidays. And largely the answer was yes. Now, it didn't happen right away. It was a slow transition, but I found more and more restaurants. And eventually I started doing more and more for those restaurants not just doing social media and content creation, but I started doing email marketing and designing their websites and helping them with SEO and all these other things that, again, it was this digital toolkit that most people just didn't understand It didn't have the time to do. So I did that on and on and on, and I basically started consulting with restaurants that way, and that took me all the way up to the pandemic, and then it all came crashing, right? So now, people who really needed me more than ever um, couldn't keep me. They couldn't afford to keep me, and... I wasn't allowed to leave my house. Mm -hmm. And so over the course of that pandemic, I went and worked, I found another job as a marketing director for a fitness company, of all things. Um, And I did all their marketing for a while. And at the same time then, I started changing my relationship with my restaurant clients. Since I couldn't leave my house, I couldn't go into the restaurant, they still needed help, so I would work with them via Zoom and on the phone. And I was like, oh, this is basically like one-on-one coaching. Mm -hmm. So I started, meanwhile, at this time, I said, started using the podcast. The podcast started in 2019. That was a labor of love in the beginning. I didn't know where it would lead. I just knew that as I was doing more and more of, I was having the same conversations. That's the restaurant
0: strategy podcast for the record. If you guys haven't yet on your player of choice, go subscribe, but let's help chip out.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. But restaurant strategy started as a way of giving a foundation of knowledge to the industry. Because I found I was having the same conversations, and that's largely was the impetus, you know, that was the, the framework for the book, what became the restaurant marketing mindset, the book that comes out on October third. I was having the same conversations over and over. And I just thought, if I'm having the same conversations with sort of big deal restaurateurs here in New York City, I bet you there are all kinds of operators and owners who could stand to hear this. So this stuff all was sort of happening at the same time. The show started a year before the pandemic, the podcast. And everything, the rug got pulled out from me when the podcast, or I'm sorry, when the pandemic hit. So I started coaching. That coaching, right, the the transition from consulting to coaching was very quick because it had to be. And then over the course of the last, let's say three years now, it's been a move from one-on-one coaching to this one-to-many model. And ultimately, it came down to, whoa, how can I make money, support my family, how can I do work I care about and how can I make the biggest impact possible for the kind of clients I really want to work with, which is largely now where I'm at. And it's funny because I always say I've did all these important things, opened all these big restaurants, Michelin stars, you know, James Beard awards, I opened a relay and Chateau property for Richard Gere, like did big stuff. And now this is the most gratifying work I've ever done because I'm working with independent operators all over the country, Real, really all over the world because yeah. we got people in, um, Canada, UK, to New Zealand. It's huge. The podcast is in something like sixty-five countries yeah. right now.
0: I get emails from people in Japan. Yeah. And it's just like, what are you doing listening to me? It's <laughs> wild, right? It's it wild. Is crazy, yeah. And
1: now that the the restaurant strategy podcast has become the foundation for so much of what I of what I do, and I couldn't have realized that. Um,
0: free man. Congratulations. Uh, I love what you're doing. It's, it's really I I've only listened to some of of a couple of your episodes and I, we had this conversation before the, and I think I've said this before in the show. I don't like listening to other restaurant podcasters because I don't like being, I want to just do what feels right.
1: It's funny. You know, it's funny. I feel, I feel the same way. I listened to you a lot in the beginning and then I sort of like, dude, I will drive
0: myself crazy comparing myself to others. You know, I just want to be like in my bubble, and just be Eric Catchatory, and uh, so far it's worked pretty well. Uh, I
1: would, I would say so.
0: And and the little bit of research I did to kind of just get a clue of who, like you know, like who, like well, one, who's my competition, right? (laughs) Uh, And two, um, just to kind of understand like your 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 energy and stuff like that. Like it's really well done. It's it's
1: at the end of the day, and something in other words,
0: I got some fucking
1: competition. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the best part in the book. We talk about this, right? There's a relationship between competition yeah. and collaboration. Right. Right? Well, There's a reason why restaurants all go to the same block. Why right. car dealerships all go to the same stretch of a, of a road. Yes. Why gas stations go to the same intersection. There is collaboration. There's a benefit you, yeah. to having competitors. Right? I go down to that block, right? I go down to the village because there are a lot of restaurants there. Right. I don't know where I'm going to go eat, but I'll eat somewhere. Right. We all help each other because there are a lot of restaurants around the village. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think when people start learning from you, it just stretches them to say, well, man, I'm learning so much from this guy. What else should I be listening to? Right.
0: And at the end of the day, no two people or two organizations are exactly the same. Agreed. And I mean, just lean into your, your greatest hits, you're leaning to your greatest strengths and you will, I think just leaning into your strengths and whatever you do best will be enough to diversify you, you know, and then you'll also won't resent having to do stuff that you don't like to do because it's what you have to do to stay alive. You I know, think it's true. Um, so I mean, th- you will go further together too. That's the other lesson 100%. I could choose to hate you because you started a <laughs> podcast in the restaurant <laughs> space, or I could say, you know, I can't stand marketing stuff half the time. Because it just drives makes my blood boil. But I recognize the significance of it. I know it's not like you need marketing, and Chip knows marketing a lot better than I do. Might as well have an ally. It's (laughs) anybody who's making their anybody
1: who's making their their career, right? Their life in this industry, they don't listen to one podcast a week and then close the door. Like they they live, eat, breathe it. They're always trying to get better. And so But but
0: that is universal. That mindset's universal go further together. Agreed. And
1: I in my experience
0: going to different communities so that i'm i should i say it out loud chip i am so close to getting an (laughs) rv i am like ready to get out of my apartment i'm just waiting for my credit score to get over 700 dude and i'm (laughs) pulling the fucking trigger because i just want to go and like embed myself in a community and talk to people and say who should i talk to who should i talk to Mm -hmm. but what happens is you don't just get to see the the industry on a micro in this one uh, business like what's happening under this one roof but then you get to t- see what's happening in their restaurant group i love that you said and that. then you get to see what's happening in the community that's right and then you get to see that holy shit weird how all the leaders in this community are friends and oh you know this executive chef might be like it might not you might not be able to go toe-to-toe with his cooking skills but there's some other restaurant in that community that they have a director of a beverage who's amazing oh oh weird they end up becoming partners. Because they know their lane yep. and they go further
1: together, yep. Yep. you know? And like, it's this mentality of just like, we, hey, we're tribal. If you do that, you get an RV and go right. into there, man, that's like a season. You could spend a year in a market. right? You could spend a month in a market and getting to know, burn. just getting to know these are the restaurants in this town. And then getting to understand the town and the people, I, it just, I feel so, I mean, it's an idea in in the book is that this idea that that we are there to serve a market. We're there to serve a group of people or a kind of person that needs something, right? You know, and we lose sight of that. But yeah, man, if you do that, right. that's what's not being done. Um, Talk about that. Yeah, I, I'm aware,
0: man. It's a it's a it, and honestly, I think that's what I would like to do because I love chaos. I am okay. not an organized <laughs> person. Just throw me into the mix, you know. I think that's why I love the restaurant industry so much as a maitre D. That yep. dining room every night, you can try to control it, yep. but there's surely shit, something that's going to go wrong in yep. that industry, a fire you have to, or yep. that in that room, that dining floor that you have to put out.
1: Oh, um, every every. it's the Danny Meyer thing, right? right? Setting the table. Everyone's trying to move the salt right. shaker off center.
0: Right, exactly. Dude, I think we have to take another break to thank our sponsors because we only got like 15 minutes left together. I might have to come back real soon so we can dive deeper into your book, but I think what we're going to do is take a break to thank our sponsors and we'll be back to talk about, uh, we're going to give you a little taste of the restaurant marketing mindset. I'm holding it. If you're watching the video, it's right here. Um, I'm excited to, to fully dive into this book. For sure. I'm just, for the record, this thing isn't even available yet. As nope. we're recording this, it's, it's October, sorry, August 22nd. Um, is that why I said, no, I said the 11th earlier. Yeah. It's,
1: sorry. It's, it's, yeah, it's August. Um, nothing comes out in October. October 3rd. So yep.
0: um, I feel very privileged to have this book in my hands. Um, we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. There are a lot of elements to consider when growing your restaurant. Are you connecting with your diners enough and with the right message? Or could your kitchen put out more orders than your dining area has room for? It can be a lot and very overwhelming when you got into this business for the food and the people. And that's why restaurants get Pop Menu menu pop menu is the restaurant technology designed to make growing your restaurant easy with pop menu you can attract more guests to your website that's designed to easily collect their contact info and data so you can see what your guests love and why they dine with you with pop menu you can also stay top of mind and build authentic relationships with guests by using modern technology that drives new and repeat business and also pop menu lets you make all your systems Systems work better together, improve margins, and conquer the chaos of restaurants' digital presence. Pop Menu Technology for restaurants ready to grow. If you are a restaurant unstoppable listener, you can get $100 off your first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at slash unstoppable. Go now to get $100 off your first month at slash unstoppable. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60 day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60 day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley CEO of restaurant systems pro will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the restaurant systems pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant restaurant. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats. And that's not it. P. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back and um, we are going to dive into, give you a little teaser of Chip Close's book, uh, The Restaurant Marketing Mindset. So uh, you told me that you wanted to cover the ABCs. So this is the basically the first
1: chapter. It's the first part of the book, right? So the restaurant ABCDs, marketing. I should say. Yeah, the ABCDs of marketing, right? The book is about. How do you find your market? How do you find a concept to fit within the market and all that? And this is an idea. This yeah. is positioning. This has been written about. What
0: comes first, right? Right. The idea or the.
1: We talk about this all yeah. the time. I ask all the time. I say, you know, what comes first? You come up with a concept and then go find, try and find a space. or do you find a space and then fit a concept to that? Right. I don't think
0: it's an easy question to answer.
1: No but it begins by looking at your community, at your market right. and seeing what they what they need. And I think the danger is is that so many restaurants, so many restaurateurs come up with a concept and then just scour all around to find the right space. And I'm not saying that that's not possible. I'm not saying that that's a bad idea, but if we're just rigid and that's the only idea, then that becomes then that becomes dangerous. So yeah. The restaurant marketing mindset, this book that I wrote, it's, you know, three plus years in the making. Right. And um, it really sets out to say, let, let's think, I mean, it says there's a mindset, right? Let's shift the way that we think about marketing. I always joke around. I say, you know, I always say, hey, tell me about your marketing. And one of two things happens. Either people tell me about all their social media or they tell me uh, that oh, we can't do marketing. We're not some big company. Yeah. But the bottom line is if you sell something to other human beings, you have to figure out which human beings. You got to figure out how to find those human beings. You got to figure out what will convince them to buy the thing you want to sell them. So you have to market. That's that's marketing. Yeah. So, yeah, the first part of this book. There's a lot we cover in the book. It's a short book. It's like 200 pages because I know uh, people don't have time. But yeah,
0: it's it's straight to the point too. It reads yeah. very direct.
1: Yeah, and, and I tried to and I tried to do it. That was purposeful. Yeah. But this idea of the ABCDs of marketing sort of goes right in line with what we were saying. You know, what we've been saying over right, which is how do you serve people. Well, it starts by figuring out what people, right? right. So I always say the ABCDs, right? It stands for audience, brand, competition, and differentiation, right? Which we've sort of talked about over the course of this in one way or another. But by starting with A, audience, right? It puts, the, it puts the people front and center, which is foolish that we have to say that because that's what we do. We take care of people for a living. But you ask a series of questions, right? Like what people, who has a problem that we're uniquely qualified to solve, or who has a problem that I'm uniquely qualified to solve. B is your brand, your company, the experience that your restaurant is providing is the solution to somebody's problem. Like, that ends up being a pretty powerful one-two punch. Mm -hmm. Say, hey, who needs something, and what can I provide them with, right? So this can be the fine dining restaurant, right, that we need a place to celebrate, and we're gonna create a really extraordinary meal. It could also be the bodega, Right by my subway. Right. Right? It can be, hey, that bodega serves uh, really quick breakfast sandwiches and a half-decent cup of coffee. Yeah. And when I'm running late, that's the problem right. they're solving.
0: And that's what I love about this industry is that there's so many problems associated with eating. <laughs> we have to do it every day, at least yeah. twice, you know? Yeah. And there's different occasions. And right. there's different preferences. There's different yep. cuisines. There's yep. people, people eat to feel a sense of comfort and back home. That opens you up to different, like... Types of restaurants, types of food, or people are an adventure eaters. Like, there's just so many problems to be solved. There's so much on 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah.
1: You know, it's funny. I always say, you know, uh, restaurants, right? Most restaurants struggle or fail. Right. But we lump them together and they're not the same. Restaurants struggle because they often don't understand their path to profitability, mm. don't understand how to do what they do, probably really well, but they don't know how to do it profitably. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, failing, right? Because the failure rate is so huge, right? 80% of all restaurants fail in their first three years. It's because I think they don't understand product market fit. They don't understand how to look at their community, how to look at their market and say, what do they need? Mm. What do they need that I'm uniquely qualified to provide? How can I provide that in a more compelling way than anything that currently exists, Mm. right? And when we do that, it's not about beating the competition. It's not about being better because better is a trap, it's not about being better. It's about being different. When I started my podcast four and a half years ago. Better is also relative. Uh, and, this, and subjective. Tell me which pizza is better.
0: Right? What, what pizza did you eat growing up? That's Here's the, the best pizza there is. A
1: hundred percent. A hundred percent. Here's the best yeah. example of that, right? I'm going to open a steak restaurant. Yeah. I say to some guy walking down, hey, come to my steak restaurant. It's really great. And they say, well, I like the other place right down the street uh, just fine. And they say, yeah, but we're better. Now you've sort of insulted that guy. Right. Like, it's like, well, I've been going there for years, and my family likes it, and we're I'm, just fine. Yeah, my,
0: my identity is tied to this. You're, my identity my culture. is tied. I mean, come on. Yeah. It is. Yeah.
1: We are. Better, what's better is if we differentiate, right? And the ABCDs drive towards this idea of differentiation. Yeah. This idea that if we're going to open a steak restaurant, we better be different. Right? Right. Yeah, and I'm tempted
0: to like mucky up the waters just because I because it's so complex, you know? And I don't mean to like take you off like you're very clearly spelled out, like and it is very well spelled out. But the more so I started my podcast just to get answers and to find the answer. Like yep. what is the best way to do anything in the restaurant industry? Yep. And the what the more I started diving, the more I started to realize that holy shit, it all depends. Yeah. Because one so like the, the the question earlier, do I start with the idea? Or do I, and then find a market or what what comes first, right? How many people start a restaurant and they know exactly the restaurant that they want to open and they've wanted to open it since they were a kid and it's their dream. You, You try to tell me to tell that person to go wipe, you know, flush all those ideas in your dream down the toilet because your market doesn't want
1: that. And that's what we need to do.
0: Right. Or where does your market exist? There you go. And how bad do you want it? Because you might have to go find
1: your people. There's two ways to market, right? Right. Either we create a product and we go try to find customers. Yeah. Or we find customers, potential customers that need something. Right. And we just create a product for them. Guess what? The very best companies, not just restaurants, the very best companies, products in the world do the latter. Right. The restaurant industry struggles and often fails because we do the former.
0: I don't disagree with you for the record. Yeah. I'm just saying that that there's... to be successful in this industry, you need to have a certain desire. You need to be able to be willing to show up, right? Sure. So like, I feel like there's a certain level of selfishness that is involved because at the end of the day, you're the one that's going to have to be there eighty hours. Sure. So you have to have something inside of you that's being fed. Uh, but there's so many different reasons why people get into the restaurant industry. Some people yep. want to franchise and make millions of dollars. Other people want to cook that one thing, you know. Sure. And they just they want to be there every day. So there also is no
1: correct answer to what the right there is. isn't what the book suggests and what yeah. I feel really passionately about is that we should broaden. We should right. take off the blinders and broaden. Mm-hmm. Right. And really we should think of this in terms of solving problems. Right. Because that's what we do so well. Anyway, right. we are generous people. We are there. And if we do that from the beginning, from the, from the, the beginning, the earliest germ, we change everything. So this ABCD right. framework, right. Where how we begin the book says, a is audience. Find somebody who needs something that you're uniquely qualified to provide. B, go provide it. Your restaurant, the experience, the whatever, right? C is competition. You say you figure out who's trying to solve the same problem you are, right? You can answer that in a bunch of different ways, but that idea, right, of, you know, who are my competitors? Well, when you think of it in terms of who's trying to solve the same problem, it changes. It shifts it. It's a, it's a more human way of asking the question. And then that leads to D, right? When we have competitors, it gives us a category, right? When we're going out for a drink after work, right? We're not looking for a little salad shop. We're not looking for a diner. We're not looking for a fancy restaurant. We're looking for a bar. So we're in a category. We're suddenly not going to the Sweet Green or the Dig or the, any of those lunch places. We're not going to the bodegas. We're, not, we're going to somewhere specific. So we got a short list. Right? A category is helpful. So once you've got competitors, you're in a category. Yeah. So either, hey, other high-end sushi restaurants in this town or restaurants on this block or restaurants in this neighborhood or nice restaurants, right? You're in a bunch of different categories depending what people are looking for, right. what kind of problem they have. So if you find people who have a problem, you craft a solution, figure out who else is trying to craft a solution to that problem, and then you differentiate. And this goes back to that thing, Right. You differentiate yourself. You differentiate yourself by looking at what already exists and saying, "Great, how can I be different? How can I separate myself?" Because ultimately, and I don't use a lot of these like academic marketing terms, right? I went back to school. I got my MBA. I learned all this crap so that we don't have to talk about it. But this idea—we
0: even mentioned that during the come-up. No, I wanted we didn't to give you that that nod of uh, you, you went back to school.
1: I but. did. Yeah, I got my MBA. So in yeah. business school, they talk about this idea of value proposition. Mm-hmm. Value proposition is just a fancy textbook way of saying what makes a consumer choose one thing what's, over another. What's in it for them? Right. What are the benefits? Why would I choose this? Yeah. Why would I choose this over that? Because it makes me look cooler. Mm-hmm. Because it's cheaper. Yeah. Because right there's and there's a bunch and in the book we talk about right yeah. talk about demographics how you look for your people right right so you can you can say hey. By gender, by age, by race, income. by income, all of that. Yeah. And we look at psychographics. What do they believe in? What do they fear? What do they aspire to? I think psychographics to? is way underplayed. I, I totally agree. I
0: think 90% of the reason why people go to a specific restaurant is because they want to be seen there and they want Agreed. people to know what their values are, which is why it's so important as a restaurant to be very forward about what your values I agree. are. I couldn't agree because more. Because people need to be able to identify with
1: you. I agree. You. The other ones that we talk about when we try to identify the who in the equation, right? And that's what we're talking about. The demographics, the psychographics. I always talk about geography. What's their relationship to the restaurant? Do they have to cross a bridge? Right. Do they have to cross a bridge? (laughs) Or is this uh, this in Florida and this caters to both locals and snowbirds? I know of a restaurant in Austin, Texas, P.
0: Terry's that has i think at one point they had 16 locations in austin alone before they went outside of the city yeah and they had literally one location that was less like a like a mile i think the uh, and i was like i asked her in the interview i was like why are you guys so close she, there's he's like there's a bridge in between
1: yeah <laughs> people won't cross
0: the bridge I was like, and there's so much truth to
1: that understanding the, the relationship yeah. that people have right is yeah. this near my work or is it near my home yeah am i gonna right i'm not gonna Get you know, get up from my dining room table and go all the way into the city if I' don't have a reason to be there. If I'm going to the theater, okay, maybe, yeah. if I'm gonna to go to a museum, fine. And then the last one is behavior, Really understanding, right why someone how this fits in with their life, right? How do they spend their time? How do they spend their discretionary income? right? The ABCD is a framework for figuring out how you how you find your way in the market. Again, a audience who's got a problem, B brand, you are the solution. C, who else is trying to solve the same problem? And D, differentiation, how do you separate yourself from your competitors? And I always say, in the book I joke around, I say, A, B, C, D leads to E, and E stands for everything. Every choice you make communicates something to a prospective diner. So. Everything matters right? to your point, right? Your, your it's values, your right? It's
0: all of that. Yeah. And that's why we have core values and a mission and a vision because when you write these things down and you say, this is who we are, this is, this is what we do. This is our target market. It gives you intention. It gives you a totally. filter and every decision you have to make, you get to throw it through that filter. And if it takes you off of who you say you are and who you serve, what your brand is and who your target market is and does this, is this within our wheelhouse of the things that we're best at, then don't do it.
1: Right, right. It's the restaurant in South Carolina, yeah. the one that aspires. Our mission is to be the best restaurant in Columbia, South Carolina. That's a real statement that filters out so much. Right. It just tells you what sort of products you source, what sort of uh, beers you bring in, what sort of how you – uh, train your servers and all of that. That's a very yeah. specific filter, right? And that will help you be better. So that's where the book starts, right. because I think that's it's like the foundation for marketing. So if we talk either about like, oh, I don't do marketing because I can't afford to, right? Or the other side is that, um, uh, you know, let me tell you about my social media. Social media is not marketing, right? Social media is a tool that's available a to the marketer, but marketing really begins by understanding where our market is meaning who could we sell to meaning who has a problem right rather than coming up with a product and finding a customer let's find a bunch of customers that need something and let's go provide them with that and i think the more i learned and evolved as a student of the industry
0: like i've seen the light Where like i probably would have been that dreamy eye like this is the restaurant i want to create and Mm -hmm. i'm just going to do it anywhere To, i mean if i'm opening a restaurant tomorrow i'm doing one thing really well yeah I'm putting all my energy into serving one problem or solving one problem for a specific target market. 100%. And I'm going to own the shit out of it.
1: And if everybody (laughs) does that and does it really well, we'll all succeed. Yeah. And this is that thing, right? Like a rising tide lifts all ships. There's the relationship between... Uh, competition and collaboration. Mm. And the book goes from there and really helps you drill down and understand four walls, what I call internal marketing, right? How do you market inside? How do you market outside? And how do you put it all together and be intentional about what you do? It doesn't have to be a mystery and an enigma. It doesn't have to be expensive. You can do it and you can do it really well. And it was written for all the independent operators out there that I've talked to and I coach with and uh, and serve on my podcast and it's really an extension of that. Yeah.
0: Um we have to wrap it up, man. I've, i but I I've I've really been enjoying this conversation. I feel like this is going to be the first of many conversations with you. Uh but before we say goodbye, how who actually let me ask you this, who do you respect and admire and believe and make a great guest mentor like you made for us today? This is really what I'm trying to become my North my North Star as far as how I get around is who am I to decide?
1: I got to think about it cuz who do I want to send you to next? Um there's a guy, Brett Census. He is the owner's managing partner of Gotham New York. Um he's been a mentor of mine for for many many years and I think I think he's a really good dude. And I think he thinks really deeply about our industry and has really great ideas. I'd
0: love to get him on the show. You should. Uh, And how can we connect with you? If we really enjoy listening to you talk today, uh, we want to maybe check out your podcast, get your book, the marketing mindset. this will not be the last time we Yeah, I think we're going to be going deeper into this book the next time.
1: Yeah, we should, we should. It's uh, the best way you can find the podcast restaurant strategy podcast, anywhere you find your podcast and go to the website. If you want to learn more about the book, the restaurant marketing mindset.com. Beautiful chip. There is no questioning my man. You are unstoppable.
0: Thanks for the time today. Thanks buddy. Cheers. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Chip Claus, for coming on, sharing your story, and getting deep into some marketing advice and mindset. And uh, this is a great book. Um, I, I didn't get the chance to really dive deep and to cover every chapter the way I would like to. Uh, we This was kind of a shotgun interview, but the little bit I did get into... Uh, the Restaurant Marketing Mindset, Chip's book that is released on October 3rd. Mark your calendars. It's written really well. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's stuff I can get behind too. It's, big, it's mindset stuff. And I think a lot of people challenge, their challenge with marketing is just wrapping their mind around how to think about it. And this book does a really good job of just getting that mindset right. So uh, I think this is just the beginning of our conversations with Chip. I'd love to get him back on to go deeper into a topic from his book and uh, bring him back regularly as we march into the future. Uh, This is awesome stuff. And if you enjoyed today's episode and you want more content just like this, guys, it's not easy traveling across the country and committing to 100% in-person, on-site interviews. I need your support. Please support the show by supporting our sponsors using our affiliate links. That's anytime a tool or service is mentioned on the show. Check out the show notes if you're interested. They might be an affiliate and uh, you will help us so much just by clicking those links. Uh, You can also join Restaurant Unstoppable Network. This is where we're continuing the conversation. If my job is to go find clues in these podcasts Episodes. The network is where we unpackage these clues and we go deeper with our guests and we, we we learn together. So we would love to have you join the network, be a part of that conversation. And uh, I'm really excited about the future of the, sh- the network. It, it, you know, Restaurant Unstoppable for almost 10 years has been kind of the, the Eric Cacciatore show, but this mission is something I want to grow beyond myself. And I feel like the network is going to make that happen. So I'm super psyched about that. Can't wait to meet you over at the network. And I cannot. Say goodbye without saying thank you to the people who make this show possible. Thank you to Jerry Parisi at Sue Madre Podcast for your copyright and editing. If you guys are ever starting a podcast, hit him up, he does great work. Thank you to Callen Miola, our new community manager. Um, so amazing the work you're doing over there! Psyched to have you on the team. And I can't say goodbye without saying thank you to Anna Tazen from Good Kind Consulting for all of your executive support and coaching takes an army. I'm grateful for mine. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.